What's happening, everybody? And welcome to another enlightening and intoxicating episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, coming at you from sunny, scenic Ridgewood, Queens. Springtime is here in New York City, and I think we're all feeling it. We're feeling a little optimism after a year of pandemic lockdown and minimal gigs and minimal performances and shows. But here we are. Starting to creep back into it. Getting back at it, gang. Uh, my recommendation to all of you out there is get outside and get some sunshine. And if some of your friends or people that you know are doing some performances outdoors at different places, go check them out. All right, we're getting back to it. Slowly but surely. And uh, I'm really looking forward to when the weather gets predictably nice and we can go out and see some great music once again in the wilds. We've done really uh, amazing work as a musical community of keeping the music alive through all of this. What with uh, you know live streams and remote recordings and various videos and opportunities to be creative with you know uh, limited circumstances, let's say. But here we are. We made it. Uh, we're getting close. We're getting close to the other side. All right, I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet this week. Uh, I wanted to mention, uh, speaking of the pandemic lockdown, uh, Shapeshifter Lab here in uh, the Brooklyn area, Brooklyn, New York, has a GoFundMe going. They've been hit pretty hard by this, as many uh, venues have. We've seen a lot of venues in New York City going under in the last couple of months. And uh, Shapeshifter Lab is still going strong, but they need your help. So... If you got, let's say, an extra fourteen hundred bucks lying around for one reason or another, and you want to support a really good cause, uh, you can go to their GoFundMe page. You can check out GoFundMe.com and search for "Help Save Shapeshifter Lab." Shapeshifter is a Brooklyn institution for uh, jazz music and improvised music, and uh, it'd be great to see them bounce back from this full force. So, if you got a little extra money hanging around, uh, be sure to visit the GoFundMe page and see if you can help them out. All right, in lieu of a new albums section of the intro, we're going to jump right in. My guest this week is Grammy-winning saxophonist, composer, and arranger Michael Thomas. Uh, Michael has performed with Brad Meldow, Daphnis Prieto, Nicholas Payton, Miguel Zanon, and Jason Palmer, and he can be heard on over 30 recordings. He is the co-leader of the Terraza Big Band, which, under normal circumstances, performs once a month at Terraza 7 in Queens. And he has released several albums as a leader, including The Long Way, Event Horizon, Duets with Chris Zimba, and his newest release, Natural Habitat, which comes out March 26th on Sunnyside Records. I wanted to sit down and talk to Michael about his brand new recording coming out this week on Sunnyside Records, Natural Habitat. Michael and I got to discuss his new release, Natural Habitat, as well as varying methods of recording and his approach to the saxophone and other woodwinds. For a change of pace, we met up at Iconic Brewing in Long Island City, Queens. Shout out to Iconic Brewing. That's I-C-O-N-Y-C. And we got to drink some good beer and uh, catch up and talk about the new album and uh, all kinds of stuff. So as we as you listen to this, you'll hear the, uh, the natural sounds of the Queens brewery scene happening around in the background, but... Uh, we had a lot of fun, and I know you will too. So, without further ado, here he is, 
Michael Thomas. Yeah, good call on the spot. Yeah. Cheers, man. Cheers. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. So, new album is Natural Habitat. Mm -hmm. I want to start on the last album. Okay. So, Event Horizon. Yeah. You got an interesting um, description to that on the Bandcamp page or wherever you put it out um, about the nature of technology and the way we interact with technology and your music being a response to that. Yeah. Can you speak to that? So, the the thing that was really interesting with Event Horizon was that we were recording everything live. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a jazz musician, you get used to playing live gigs, but recording that way is totally different. You know, sure. you, okay. like you're going to have like maybe two takes of everything if you've got two nights. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you record a little bit differently. Like you're trying to get the sound of the room. You're trying to get the sound of the audience. You're, you're trying to get the sound of things that you don't do in the studio. And I think the way that we've learned to record so often is based on technology that's available to us in the studio and the fact that we can splice takes, we can overdub a solo, we could add, you know, layers of other instruments on a, a tune if we wanted, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that I think we grew accustomed to in terms of structuring a recording session. Mm -hmm. And with Event Horizon, it was kind of a response to the other side of that, where it's like, I'm just going to write some tunes that are a little bit more open-ended, that allow us to really just play and explore each other's parts in the band, explore the sound of the room, you know, and just capture exactly what's happening, you know, that one time that we have a chance to play this music together and try to do something that I wouldn't necessarily try to do if we were recording in like a more modern way, sure. so to speak. Okay. So. Give me an example. Like, um, what would be an example of what you would do differently besides just the sound of the room and sort of the spontaneity of it? I think, uh, well, I mean, to compare it to the, the new album, sure. I mean, there's, there's tunes on there where we went in and I said, okay, like on this section of the tune, we're going to use roads and we're going to like, like fade from this to that. So we're going to record parts in this order. And, you know, even though we were starting with a complete take of the tune, I had specific instructions sometimes to, to play up to this part and then to play this part on this instrument so that the improvised sections were still being played live. And then we were adding things in to fill out the arrangement and the orchestration around that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think another difference that that also highlights sort of the, the, so to speak, analog way that we recorded Event Horizon is that there's no piano on it. Mm -hmm. So it, it gives even more space. You hear more of the sound of the room instead of the sound of chords filling out the tunes. Sure. And that, again, it, it makes everybody respond to the music a little bit differently than they would if there was somebody comping on piano or guitar or vibes mm -hmm. or something like that the whole time. And that was... That was really part of the concept as well, was to to challenge myself to write tunes that would be interesting without requiring, you know, a harmonic foundation as much as a lot of my music has. Mm -hmm. So did you start off with that as the concept and then fill it out with, like, write a bunch of tunes that fit that? Yeah, there, there were two older tunes on that record that I sort of rewrote and adapted uh, for that project. 
but the majority of it was, I think out of the nine tunes, seven of them were, were brand new that I wrote about a month ahead of the project. Okay. So, yeah, it was, it was all, it was basically all new music and stuff that once I knew who the band was going to be, I knew who I was writing for, which... Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's always an advantage as a composer is to be able to say, like, okay, you know, this musician really excels at these things. How can I highlight that or feature that aspect of their playing on a tune or throughout the record or whatever? So that was that was a cool thing to be able to do. Sure. So you had the band set out, and then you went to write the music for the mm-hmm. specific circumstance. Yeah, and the two, the two older tunes, um, they just kind of, like, fell into place with the vibe of the the stuff that I was writing for that record, so Mm -hmm. um, just kind of rounded it out. But you hadn't played, had you played with that particular lineup before? I know you played with Jason Palmer. Uh, I had not played with that particular lineup until the day before we started recording. Okay. Um, I had had played with all of them on separate things, Uh and... uh, I actually, I mean, Jason and I go way back. We were, we were playing in Boston, I think, starting in 2009. We met, and I, I started playing in his band and learned, learned a lot hanging out with him and playing his music. Um, and then right after I moved to New York in 2011, Hans Glavishnik was one of the first musicians I started playing with here because uh, he, he plays regularly with Miguel Zanon's quartet and... Through Miguel, I got to know Hans, and it turned out we were neighbors, and he was just kind of down to play sessions all the time. So, so that turned out to be a great connection for me because if if he's playing bass, I could suddenly start calling any drummer that I ever wanted to play with, and they sure. were like, "Oh yeah, Hans is playing. Cool, I'll, you know, I'll come over." Yeah, right. So, yeah. so he really helped me to to meet a lot of people, and he's also been one of my favorite bass players to listen to since I don't know, probably since I first heard Miguel in high school. Mm-hmm. So sure. And That's then, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of surreal being in New York and, you know, you arrive in the city and you wonder what's going to happen and then, you know, those kind of things start happening. Sure, And it, yeah. it kind of reminds you why you wanted to move here in the first place. Totally. There's also an energy here that people, no matter what they're doing on the regular or what their regular gigs are or whatever, are just down to play. It feels like everybody yeah. just wants to play and hang out. And yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, having lived in Miami and Boston before this, there isn't, at least in my experience, I haven't seen that kind of commitment to creativity mm-hmm. in other in other music scenes. Sure. Yeah. But I think that's it's one of the reasons why people know they want to move here. But to actually experience that after you've moved here is, is a different it's, it's thing. It's rewarding. Yeah. yeah. It's better than just like, oh, I hope this, this is like a dream, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, this is the same you know, right. place that I've been in the, you know, the whole time. So did you cho- why did you choose those musicians in particular for that session? Um, well, so I had actually, it, it's kind of funny, going back to the, the new record, I had recorded that already. Oh, really? But it, it wasn't mixed. I hadn't done anything with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jimmy Katz, who runs Giant Step Arts, and, and that organization funded Event Horizon, he actually got to know me through Jason Palmer because Jason had recorded, I think, by that time already two records for Giant Step. Or maybe he was about to record his second. I can't, I can't remember. But Jason had put us in touch and... It, as it turned out, Jimmy was interested in my music, reached out to me about doing a live recording that summer. And 
obviously that's not the sort of thing you ever turn down. Sure. So, you know, I, I mentioned to him, you know, I, I just did this record in, in April. Um, you know, is that is that a problem for you? And he said, no, not at all. But, you know, let's hold off on you releasing that because I'm going to move quickly on this project once it's recorded. You know, we'll mix it, we'll master it, and we'll have it out, you know, probably within, you know, six to nine months of whenever we record. I said, okay, that's fine. So I put the other project on the back burner, and that one actually has Hans and Jonathan both playing on it because they're two of my favorite musicians. Mm -hmm. So when I started talking to, to Jimmy about um, who might do the live record, I was like, well, I love playing with them. If you're not opposed to having them on this one as well, then, you know, let's, let's make that happen. And since he already knew Jason, and I'm also a huge fan of his playing and have played with him so much, it was a great chance to reconnect with him, mm -hmm. write some new music that, you know, he, he's in a very small group of trumpet players that are capable of playing. Yeah, there's some so, tricky stuff going on on some of those tunes. Yeah, so, um, so that was kind of how that group came together. It was, you know, it was a chance to reconnect with Jason, and it was another chance to play with a couple of guys that I had been working with earlier that year, so... Hmm. Um, just kind of all worked out. Sure. And then, so you rehearsed that, how did you rehearse that music? Was it just before you you did the, it was at the Jazz Gallery, right? Yeah, so we, we recorded two nights in August at the Jazz Gallery, and we had, like, the whole day, the day before, to rehearse there. Uh, which was, that was actually really great that we got to rehearse at the Jazz Gallery, mm -hmm. because live recording is is always a little strange in terms of, like, what the what the engineer needs versus what the band needs and sure. during the rehearsal Jimmy just brought all of his recording gear and set up and our sound check was you know a six hour rehearsal sure, we didn't even amazing. have to think about it and he would just give us like some subtle stuff like you know if we make this adjustment can you guys still hear what you need to you know so we we're kind of tweaking it and even though the sound you know, from a performer's perspective, it was a little odd. You know, it's not the way I would normally set up at the jazz gallery, but mm -hmm. we had a whole day of rehearsing to get used to that. Sure, exactly, yeah, yeah. Which, which made a big difference so that we didn't show up and all of a sudden everything sounded different than what we had been expecting. Mm -hmm. So, Which is so often the case even in live performance, where you rehearse in a particular space and then you'll show up someplace else, even just something like... Where are we gonna put the music stand, or how are we gonna set this band up, or like, what's the sound in this? Where's right. The yeah, yeah. We're gonna like all of a sudden you're below the, you know, air conditioner or something like it could change anything. So yeah. So, that so that was out. that was really great that we were able to do that, and I mean the rehearsal process itself. I mean, as as you would expect with with those guys. I mean, they showed up, they had checked out the tunes. I mean, it it was mostly a matter of just like getting a vibe on some of the material, and you know playing together as a band for the first time even though I had played with everybody. I think it was the first time that Jason and Jonathan played together even though they they knew each other and mm -hmm. you know had played with all the same people. Sure. So, you know, it was it was a fun experience to put that together and like sort of see how everything evolved, you know, over the course of that day. And then the next night it was a totally different thing and then the second night we recorded it was a totally different thing again. Mm. And I think all the takes on the record are from the second night. Isn't that the yeah. case? So, it feels like every time, you know, 
it's good to have those just so you say, okay, well, we have the we have them in the bag. We can take from those if we need to. The, the, the first eggs. Right. But I feel like everybody's story is the same, where it's like the first night is like, okay, let's try to figure this out. Yeah. And the second night will be like, yeah, it's loose. You know, let's play. Yeah, music. exactly. And I think I think that's where the magic really happens, especially like like the vibe of some of the stuff I was writing, where it was intentionally more open and like some freer sections on some of the tunes. You know, it just it takes a couple times to like really be comfortable playing something like that and trusting the musicians you're playing with. For sure, and, yeah. You know, the whole thing. It's a funny thing, too. I'll talk to people who are like rock or funk or pop musicians or whatever, and the idea that you would just throw together a band real quick and like still be able to come up with high-level music and yeah. communicate and everything is kind of foreign to a lot of people. Right. You'd be like, oh, how long have you guys been playing together? It's like, well, uh, about 28 minutes now, you know. Right, right, right. But in that world, you can be, as long as you can, everybody understands where each other's coming from, you can be creative. And Right, and I think that's one of the things that's great about this music is that, you know, you you play with, you know, a drummer like Jonathan, and he's checked out the entire lineage of jazz drummers and put his own stamp on what his take on the music is. Mm-hmm. And no matter, no matter what you're trying to do or what you're hearing, he can sense that immediately and sort of reference the things that you need him to for your music while still sounding like himself. Sure. You know, and the same with Hans or Jason or on the new record, Julian on piano, you know, and all the people that I listen to and play with, it's just, it's kind of a, a crazy thing to think about that everybody has like sort of this intuitive knowledge that they, they reach for when the time is right. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's, a, it's kind of an interesting, um, maybe specific endorsement for the mindset of you have to really understand the tradition. Yeah. Because it, jazz music is filled with this dichotomy of how do you, you have to know the tradition and yet still push the music forward. And yeah. a lot of people get maybe emphasize one or the other, but it's a really interesting point. It's like, it's not just for, uh, let's say, the academic like street cred or whatever to know how to play that music it's like in order for everybody to be able to communicate fluidly you have to have come from the same right right and i think i think anybody that's serious about this music studies it in that way Mm -hmm. and there's a quote uh i can't remember who said it i think maybe it was maybe it was pat metheny but um he said the the tradition of jazz is innovation sure you know and and you think about the people who were, like, the most important musicians on any instrument throughout this music. I mean, uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, Lester Young. I mean, like, you could, you could name as many as you wanted, but they all did something that was completely unique and hadn't been done before that sent the music in a, a different direction than it would have gone without that musician's input sure you know Mm -hmm. so so i think that's just it's kind of a a great thing to be part of a scene where that's still happening yeah no doubt so this is a pretty good uh transition here as you're writing so whether we're doing i want to get to the specifics of the new record but regardless of so you're preparing to put out a new recording or whatever Mm -hmm. as you're writing what's your aim I guess it really depends on the situation. Um, I mean, a lot of the time, I've got, you know, several notebooks at home that are just filled with, like, incomplete tunes and ideas. And I'll just be at the piano or, you know, sometimes on on my horn, too. 
just messing with an idea and, you know, if something seems like it's strong enough that it might stick, I'll put it in the notebook and just, you know, I'll come back to it later and see, you know, how can I use this or can I develop this into something else? Or there's been times where, you know, an idea that I have turns out to be the perfect solution for a problem in a tune that I was trying to write a year ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So it's a little bit hard to say what my process is like because it's always a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of goals when I'm writing or objectives or, you know, however you want to think of that, I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to write things that let the musicians I'm playing with have a lot of freedom. Like even if there's a lot of like specific things about a particular tune, like maybe there's like a, a composed bass figure or, you know, it might have like a, a ton of chords on one part or, the, you know, there may be some aspect of it that's got like like a more complex thing, but I try to balance that with space for the musicians to really be themselves. Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like without that element, it's just going to sound the same every time. Sure. You know, and I, there's definitely been tunes I've written to fill a particular place in a set list where, you know, this is my concept for the tune and this is how I would like it played. But there might be one of those to, like, serve a purpose played in a set of eight or nine tunes. So I think, for the most part, I'm trying to, I'm trying to just let the, music, the musicians bring their own voice to it mm-hmm. so that, for me, it also stays fresh. I mean, I can play the same tune... 10 times with the same players and everybody's going to do something a little bit different, react to each other a little bit differently. And it's going to feel like a new experience or even more so, you know, like somebody new is in the band for a gig and then it's a completely new experience. Like I've never, I've never heard the tune played that way. And that's, that's really exciting for me as a composer. And I, I think it continues to give me new ideas about how to write Mm -hmm. because you know, you hear you hear somebody add that one thing, and it's like you didn't know that that's what was missing in this other tune. You know, sure, yeah, yeah. So, I I think I'm often thinking about the other players when I'm writing mm-hmm. and trying to think like, is this something they would enjoy playing? Sure. So it's also that's also a feature of the music. I think about like um, you could take the entire Miles band in the '60s and replace Miles with Freddie Hubbard. And the sound of the band is now completely different. Right. And it's kind of amazing. You just one, of course, he was the leader of the band, but you just take one piece, or even maybe on another level, like um, George Coleman and Wayne Shorter, or something like that. Right. Right. Just one thing can make it a completely different. Vibe. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's really clear. I mean, it, it's the whole rhythm section, but you know, like the stuff they did in '69 with. Chick and Dave Holland and Jack DeJohnette, mm-hmm. they're still playing some of those same tunes, and it's a totally different vibe and energy and everything. Sure. Yeah, and and you hear it in the way that Miles and Wayne are playing on the tunes. Mm-hmm. So for sure, yeah, it's an interesting thing too—the difference between 1964 and 1969. I know a lot of things, or even 1967 and 1969. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's elite, man. It's pretty wild. Did you ever? Um, did you ever read? Uh, how Music Works, the David Byrne book. Have you ever seen no, that? I haven't. I haven't read that it's one. It's kind of an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting book, but one of the things that he talks about that is always stuck in my head is that oftentimes music is shaped by the environment. Mm. So, like, you think about like 
old church music is all diatonic. Right. They're not going to write Stravinsky in a in like a huge cathedral where all the dissonance is just going to be like cacophony. You know what I mean? Right. That's Whereas that's true. Later on, you might like if you're writing music for CBGBs, it's going to be a different yeah. situation than if you're writing it for a cathedral or whatever. And I feel like that's the same thing. Like uh, if you're dealing with, it's interesting. Just all right, you're going to write for these musicians, and you're going to write in this environment. It's going to be a live thing as a quartet versus right. a studio. That's where that music is coming from. It's like, here's the environment in which this music can be performed. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that because going back to my, my very first record, uh, The Long Way, most of the music for that I wrote when I was playing two nights a week at Wally's in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote it thinking about how it was going to sound in that club, which is like the rowdiest place in Boston. Sure. And we played super loud, like high energy, intense, you know, we would often play a two-hour first set and take a 30-minute break and then play an hour-and-a-half second set. And the first set would be either four or five tunes, depending sure. on like how much we stretched out. Mm-hmm. So I wrote all this music with that in mind, and it was like open forms, vamps, and all this stuff. And then I went to record it, and I was kind of like, what do I do with this in the studio if I'm only <laughs> trying to play it for six minutes? Right, yeah, like that's yeah, yeah. That's like literally a fifth of the time that I normally play this sure, tune. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do I play a 90-second solo on this tune instead of a seven-minute solo? Right. Wow, that's interesting. So, you know, it's it's the same thing, and, like, sort of the energy that we're bringing to that music, it was a result of the energy that the crowd was giving us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. But you wouldn't know that until you're in the studio already. Right. How did you deal with it? Um, you know, it was interesting because the, the rehearsal process for that music... We're a little bit limited because we're recording it here, and three of us were in Boston, and and two of the players were here, and we had we had one rehearsal with four of us and one rehearsal with all of us the day before the session, and in the first rehearsal, even though even though the bassist wasn't there, we did a lot of work to sort of adjust the the overall like shape of the tunes, mm-hmm. you know, and. And actually, the the drummer Lee Fish, he had he had a lot of helpful input on like how to shape that stuff mm, okay. and transition from one section to the next, maybe a little bit differently than we normally would on a gig. Um, so so really, in that in those two rehearsals, a lot of things came together, and then it was kind of like we had two versions of the tune. It's like if we're playing like like you know short version, let's do it this way. If we're playing the Wally's version, let's. Let's just, like, rock out. Yeah, sure, yeah. It's nice to have that, too, because you never know yeah. what kind of environment you're going to be in. Yeah, and a lot of it was, like, you know, it wasn't even stuff where we had to change the charts or anything like that. It was just kind of an understanding that, like, like we could do it this way or we could do it this other way. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that was a really important learning experience for me, and I think it sort of led to what I was talking about a minute ago about trying to give the musicians more freedom in the music. Mm-hmm. Because even though some of those tunes in their early stages... There was a lot of freedom in, in the sense of, like, long forms, long solos, that sort of thing. Because of how we were playing it and where we were playing it, we kind of played it the same way a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And then realizing that I had to, like, build in, like, some other things into into newer tunes, I think that, that helped me a lot to go through that experience. Sure. So... Natural Habitat. Mm-hmm. Did you go into that with a concept for the album, or was it largely the people that you're working with? It was it was largely the people I was working with. Um, like I said, I played with Hans a lot, mm-hmm. 
And Julian as well. He's been a friend of mine since, uh, I don't know, at least 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I moved to Boston in 2008, I think maybe he, he was graduating from Berkeley or had just graduated. And everybody that was like a young musician in Boston was like, oh, man, you have to check out Julian Shore. He's the best. And, and we somehow missed each other in Boston. And I think the first time we ever played together, we both came back from New York to do a gig together in All Boston right. like three years <laughs> later. And, and when that happened, I was kind of like, oh, shit, he is the best. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, After the fact. Yeah, that was, that, was like a nice, that was like a nice moment to like connect with him finally. Mm. Um, it's funny how many people I've only met who even went to NEC like in New York. Or yeah, exactly. So um, I had been playing with the two of them for a long time, and I had met Jonathan uh, maybe a year or two, two years before we did this record. We had, we'd done a couple sessions. He did, he did a gig with me, with my quartet, with some, some other musicians. And um, I think, well, actually, part of the inspiration for this was a, a record that I, I heard a long time ago by Donnie McCaslin called Recommended Tools. Okay. Because Hans and Jonathan are the rhythm section on that trio okay. record. And, like, I knew Hans, I knew Jonathan, and, like, hearing that record, I was like, oh, man, like, like I have to make this happen for my music. Sure, yeah. So, so I wanted to do that, and then, you know, having played with Julian and sort of knowing some of, some of my tendencies musically and, like, you know, what the other two guys were going to bring to the music. He was just the perfect way to balance everything out and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, like, like make a really nice quartet out of it. So, and, you know, it also helped that, that he had played my music a lot and mm-hmm. there, was, there wasn't really anything I had to explain to him in terms of, you know, what I was listening for, what I wanted. You know, he just showed up and knew what to do. Sure. So. Yeah. I like that policy of, like, you call the people who are going to know intuitively what's you know yeah. what to do rather than I, explaining and I think you get to a you get to a certain level and you know that's more common than not mm-hmm. but it's just it's nice to sort of have like that personal connection with the musicians too where it's like like not only do you know that they know what to do and and the way you'd like the music to to sound when you perform it but it's also just like a good vibe. It's a good hang. It's, sure. a, it's a chance to to make music with friends, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, another part of the music is that just that spontaneity of like just the personalities in in the room. Yeah, involved in yeah, the, for what sure. The music is going to sound like. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is once we get out of this uh, the plague here, we're going to have a, I think a newfound appreciation for just hanging out in a room with people playing music. I, I think so too. Because it's nowadays we, we can still play, but it's a lot of the time it's like doing these like you know remote recordings and things of that nature. But it's a totally different vibe. You can get some good stuff, but it's a completely different yeah. experience than yeah, being or in a room. Playing outside and the sound is weird. Or yeah. The bass player doesn't have an amp, or you know whatever yeah. the problem of the day is. Yeah coming up with like we're going to come back and it's going to be such a breath of fresh air even to go see you know I know hear yeah. music live actual people making one minute's music in one minute's time yeah uh, so these tunes did you write all of them for this album uh, actually these tunes were kind of written over the last like nine or ten years okay um, and one you know I sort of like everything aligned so that I was able to get this recording together in March 2019. I think. I think it was like almost exactly two years ago okay. today. Uh-huh. Like two two years ago, a week from today. 
Um, and part of it was that Hans doesn't live in New York anymore. He's splitting his time between Frankfurt and San Francisco. Okay. Because he, he plays in the HR big band and his family's in San Francisco. Okay. So he's back and forth, but that week he happened to be in town to play with Miguel Zanon's band at the Vanguard. So in conjunction with him being here, I was kind of like, okay, how can we make this happen? Because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's not here that frequently. And it just, like, the stars aligned and we were able to book the session on a Sunday. We were able to rehearse two days earlier in the week and get the music together. Um, so it was actually, like, the logistics came first for this one. Because mm-hmm. it, it was, like, all the people I wanted could make it happen then. And then I started thinking about who was playing, and I started picking tunes that I had performed a lot and been wanting to record, hadn't had a chance to, but stuff that they were going to sound really good on. So mm-hmm. in, a, in a similar way to Event Horizon, you know, I was thinking about the musicians when I chose the music. This just happened to be stuff that was already finished. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, just trying to pick stuff that really highlights what everybody does. Um, and also just create like some variety and a good set list that, you know, I hope will keep people engaged for the duration of the album. Sure. So. Yeah. Um, where did you record it? it sounds uh, great. Thank you. Uh, we did it at Bunker okay. in Brooklyn, which I had been to a couple of times before that. I did, I did a recording with um, Jeremy Noller there. I did some some woodwind overdubs for for Meldow's last record there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's that, Gabriel? Finding Gabriel. Finding Gabriel. So I had I had been to the studio a couple of times, and I I liked it. I mean, I, I got a great vibe there. I I liked the space. I know their their engineers are great. Their gear is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I felt totally comfortable going in and and doing it there. But after doing this session, it's like absolutely the only place I want to record. Like okay. they, they just nailed it. Sure. So everything was exactly what I would have wanted. Like no technical glitches. Engineer was super cool. Mm-hmm. Who's the engineer? Um, Nolan Thies. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just nailed it. Uh, and he was like so tuned into the music. You know, if we wanted to to edit something on the spot or like I, like I mentioned before, like like adding keyboards and I was overdubbing bass clarinet on a couple of things mm-hmm. like he he just knew exactly where we were sure um, and it, it also helped that like we had had a couple days to rehearse but we did ten tunes in five and a half hours wow and you know was it one day yeah yeah it was it was kind of the only way we could do it was like if we did it Sunday morning and I don't, I don't know if you've been to Bunker before, but they do like a half day and a full day mm-hmm. rate. And the half day is five hours. And I was, I was like, uh, that's pushing it. Yeah. And I, I got them to tack on like one more hour on the end of that at like their hourly rate. Uh-huh. Just, just for a safety net. Sure. And, um, you know, going into it, I remember talking to Julian and I was like, okay, can you record for six hours? And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, Without a break, <laughs> I was like, because, because, like, you know, out of out of respect for these other guys that are like like older and you know they they've been around. Like, I'm not gonna ask them to do something like that. But you know, Julian's a friend of mine, and you know, I was kind of like, look, we can we can do things in a certain order. I can give them a chance to like 
like go grab lunch for a minute while we punch in some of this other stuff and then everything's gonna be fresh for the rest of the record or mm -hmm. you know like if that's not cool I can book more time but you know let me know what you think and he's like oh no that's totally cool okay and he was just like a, a total total pro at that and um it, it just it really kind of like made everything fly by and even at the end of the day uh nolan nolan was saying that like the day before they'd had like some session that was a total disaster and he was like man this is refreshing to just like press record <laughs> well it's another funny thing sometimes you do like you'll you know i mean to do 10 tunes in five and a half hours is pretty serious yeah. but you'll have I'm sure they have rock bands coming in all the time no disrespect to rock, I don't know if I'm you know whatever they probably do like three tunes in a day yeah, or something one tune yeah, yeah they could spend the whole day on like one thing just writing like, it or, yeah, the yeah. snare sound is just not what we're like yeah exactly yeah. and it's just so, like alright let's crush ten of these tunes yeah and it was cool I mean we did I think there was maybe one there was one that we only did one take because we we got the framework of the tune it was one that we were gonna like add some layers and stuff and I was like okay like that's it. Like let's take a break. We're gonna we're gonna fix some stuff in this. Mm -hmm. And then there was one tune that I think we did three takes. Everything else was two. So okay. it's just kind of like play it twice, use the second take. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Sure. Um, but it, it was cool. I mean, it was a, it was a super fun session, and uh, you know, then having Dave Darlington mix and master. I mean, you can't really go wrong with him. Sure. So. Did you go in with ten songs saying we're gonna we're gonna record yeah. these ten tunes? There was yeah. no extra. Sometimes people will record fourteen and th know that they're gonna throw out. No, there was. There was definitely like a like a plan to record all ten, and there was there was one. There were two actually. One of them ended up being the the bonus track, which is just online, um, and. The other one was like sort of a similar type of tune. And I was like, okay, if we're short on time, we can cut one of these mm -hmm. because I know I don't want both of them printed on the record when it's done. Because it would be too too similar in terms of yeah, and you know I had kind of, I had kind of imagined a set list in my head. I, I hadn't like totally ironed it out yet, but it was like there's a place for one of those. You know, sure. mm -hmm. I'd like to record both of them because I like the tunes, but you know we could cut one if we need to and. It, ended up getting good takes of both and just releasing one of them digitally only. So mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. It gives you the opportunity to do it. Back in the day, you have an LP or something, you only had half of it. Right, yeah, yeah. You get the opportunity to do it. Uh, so on the record, you're playing alto and bass clarinet. Right. Right? Bass clarinet sounds great. But Thanks. I don't know if I've ever heard you play bass clarinet before. Is um, that a normal, is that like a regular double for you? I guess it is. It, yeah, I mean, as, as much as any jazz saxophonist has regular doubles um, when I was when I was in college uh, I, I studied at the University of Miami and the, the big band program there is just you know incredible and that was kind of like what I aspired to you know showing up there as a freshman and hearing the top big band I knew that to be able to play with that ensemble before I graduated I would have to get to like an extremely high level of woodwind doubling Mm -hmm. that, that was the way it was at the sure. school. Okay. And prior to college, I was mostly a classical saxophone player. You okay. know, I had started I had started getting into jazz 
my senior year, I, I had played a little bit before that, but my senior year I got more serious about like really practicing it and transcribing some solos. Okay. Before that you weren't improvising much? Or? Yeah, not too much. I mean, I was playing in my high school big band and like I understood some theory, but you know, definitely would not consider myself an improvising musician at the time. Sure. Um, and your dad's a saxophone player. He is, yeah. Is he, is he a jazz player? or is he? He, he does both. He was, um, when I was younger, he was in the Air Force Band in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And he, he was officially assigned the concert band. So he was, he was okay. primarily doing a classical thing then, but he was subbing with the Airmen of Note and, and doing a lot of jazz and commercial gigs around D.C. at the time. And now he, he teaches at a college in Florida and runs the jazz program there. So mm-hmm. he's, he's doing both. Sure. Um, so he, he really got me started on some of that stuff early on, but especially the classical stuff. Yeah. You know, he was, he was really serious about that, and um, I'm, I'm thankful that he was because I feel like, like technically I approach the instrument a certain way as a result of that. Mm-hmm. that sure. You know, it gives me the ability to, to sort of play it with a certain fluidity that, mm-hmm. you know, I... I kind of always gravitated towards when I listened to recordings of players early on, sure. you know, like like Michael Brecker, Joe Henderson. You know, like I, I was into chops. Yeah, they could <laughs> you play. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also good to get that stuff out of the way early. Exactly. Really you know, your... and not have to go back and like fix your fundamentals later on. Right. Yeah. So you know, going into college, I had studied a lot of classical stuff, um, but I I signed up for secondary lessons on flute and clarinet. Okay. And that became like kind of an outlet for me to continue studying classical music. Mm. And I stuck with it and I took lessons on both of those in addition to saxophone all the way through undergrad. And especially clarinet, I got really serious. I was, I was playing principal clarinet in the wind ensemble. And then when I went to NEC, I was also playing clarinet in the wind ensemble there, oh, okay. even while I was studying masters in jazz performance. Mm-hmm. And that gave you the opportunity to just work out your chops on clarinet. Yeah, so, you know, clarinet was always, like, like a strictly classical thing for me. Mm-hmm. Flute, flute, I studied classical, but, you know, mechanically it's similar to the saxophone in a way that improvising is a little bit more natural for me on okay. that. Mm-hmm. Clarinet, I didn't really start improvising on it until more recently. And I think, you know... A lot of the stuff that I've listened to, I mean, there's, for some reason, there's just a tradition of, like, great bass clarinet players in jazz. I mean, like, yeah. like going all the way back to, like, Eric Dolphy, but more modern guys, I mean, Myron Walden, Chris Potter, John Ellis, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think part of it was being drawn to their music in the first place, but also studying clarinet, you know, bass clarinet kind of became my outlet for improvising on that instrument. Sure. So, um, it is it is definitely part of what I do and something that I've started practicing again recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting because not everything works on bass clarinet. But then there's certain things that sound so good on bass clarinet that you can't really imagine it done otherwise. Sure. Okay. You know, and that's that's yeah. actually the the case with the um, demise on mm-hmm. the new record because that that tune was straight up written for bass clarinet. Okay. And I it makes sense hearing yeah, it. I I knew when I was composing it that like the this is going to be probably the hardest thing I've ever like tried to improvise on on bass clarinet. Oh interesting, but, okay. But 
the melody and the you know just the shape of the tune it lends itself so well to that instrument that like you know I was up for the challenge mm -hmm. and uh, you know since then there's been certain gigs where I'm like like traveling or something like that and it's not realistic to bring that horn with me and I, it's just not the same to play that tune on saxophone sure you know yeah, so that makes sense that demise in particular too that was the one track that you used keyboards as opposed to piano right. We also use keyboards on two cities. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But is that a synthesizer? What do you? What was the? What's the keyboard? Yeah, it's a it's a Roland synthesizer. Um, he's also playing Rhodes on it. Okay. Um, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of textures. But that combo, the synthesizer bass clarinet combo, is unstoppable. Yeah, it's it's interesting because clarinet and bass clarinet, if you if you analyze it from like an acoustical perspective, it produces like very close to a sine wave. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, which is really different from any other wind instrument. And I, I remember even thinking that when I was in high school, like hearing certain recordings of like like studio big bands and like some some Brookmeyer stuff, and thinking like, is that a, is that a synthesizer? No, that's clarinet. That's yeah. like three people playing clarinet in unison, and it sounds like synthesizer. Sure. And it a lot of that has to do with how it's mixed. But that that was like one of those moments where it's like. Like the synth solo on that section in the tune kind of like brings a little bit different energy to the tune. Mm -hmm. And then doubling the melody on bass clarinet and synth, it's almost like they're the same but different. Yeah, for sure. So it, yeah. it was it was cool to like have an opportunity to record this stuff in a way that we could layer some of that in and then, mm -hmm. you know, comping on roads under the electronic stuff. And, sure. You know, yeah, and that speaks it. to your point as a, as a contrast to... to um, Event Horizon. Right, exactly. Right? It's something you would be able to do in that context. It's interesting, too, that I don't feel like... I feel like that it's a cohesive thing. It doesn't feel like, as I'm listening to it... Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> as I'm listening to it, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is a new thing. Like, it feels like a cohesive sound, even though you're throwing the electronics in there. It doesn't right. seem like it's out of nowhere. And that was... Get out of here! That was one of the that was one of the things that I was thinking about going into the session because I knew I wanted to incorporate some of that stuff on a couple of these tunes, but just figuring out the way that I could do it the most musically. Sure. Because one of the things that is great about the studio is the ability to incorporate all of this technology into what you're doing and use it to enhance the music. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's a drag about the studio is sometimes you can get sucked into all the technology and the music suffers because of yeah. it. Yeah, I think we've all heard records where yeah. you're like, maybe you could have taken a step back from all those. You know? Yeah, so so that was that was fun for me to sort of think about that ahead of time and, and you know, plan a roadmap of how some of these tunes were going to work. Mm -hmm. So... Hmm. Uh, I'm going to take a side... I'm going to take a sidestep here. Okay. How was... Um, what was the process like recording on uh, the Meldow record? Oh, so that was that was interesting. Um, so I, th I think a lot of people know that um, Brad Meldow and Joel Fromm go way back. and I think they went to high school together, but they've, they've recorded a ton together and, and, you know, lifelong friends. And I had met Joel playing with Daphnis Prieto's big band. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... And that gig for me was a lot of flute and piccolo doubling, mm -hmm. and and Joel was asked by Brad to organize like like woodwind players for the parts on Finding Gabriel, 
and he had kind of broken it down into like somebody needs to play this, somebody needs to play this, somebody needs to play this. And, you know, he needed an alto player that doubled on flute, and Joel and I had just been playing with Daphnis, and that record had just come out. So, What's the know, name of that album? Uh, Back to the Sunset. Okay. Um, super fun band, super fun music. Mm-hmm. But, you know, fortunately I was like in the right place at the right time and, and got the call for that. And it was, it was two tunes, and none of us really knew what it was going to be. You know, he sent us the parts, and he sent us, like, the, the Sibelius recording of what the Woodwind stuff sounded like. And mm-hmm. it was kind of like, okay, you know, that, cool. Like, that's, that's what we're playing. And then we got there. So it was, it was me and Joel and Chris Cheek and uh, Charles Pillow. Okay. So it was four of us overdubbing as many as, I think, 11 layered parts at different times. Mm-hmm. So Is it that first track? Yeah, it's the first track, and then it's, um, forget the name of the tune, but it's the one that Joel solos on. Okay. just, like, totally shreds. Yeah. There's a lot, that album, there's a lot going on. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool project. Yeah. But Meldow is always coming up with something, I mean... Yeah, it's yeah. kind of new thing, man. It's yeah, it was, up it was pretty cool. But, like, going into it, like I was saying, none of us really knew what was happening based on the parts we had been sent mm-hmm. and the, the, like, little MP3 clips of the, the MIDI stuff. Sure, right. So then, you know, we're getting set up and we're sound checking, and, and Brad was like, well, come in and, and listen to the track, you know, and I'll show you where you guys are playing. And we, did, we didn't know until that moment that it was, like, a follow-up to the the Meldal Juliana stuff mm-hmm. that had come out a few years before. Okay, sure. So yeah. we heard that and we're all like, oh, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. Sure, yeah, yeah, different vibe. You know, and it, it was cool. Uh-huh. It, was, it was like a really, like, exciting moment to, like, like hear that and and sort of see where he was going with all this mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, you um, can't capture that in the MIDI file. Yeah, the no, exactly. MIDI or whatever. Um, and I mean, like, the, the stuff he sent us didn't even have, like, any rhythm section stuff or anything mm-hmm. like that. Sure. So... So it was, it was kind of exciting to like just be there in the control room with him and be like, oh, okay, this is this is what we're about to do. Um, I mean, those those guys are all ridiculous players. So I mean, we we're just like doing takes, overdubbing things, fixing things, kind of you know it it was like a typical overdub session. Um, I remember being in the in the control room when when Joel was recording his solo on on the second tune we did. Mm-hmm. And every take was just like the most saxophone I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I don't know, let me do another one. And we're like, really? <laughs> that was ridiculous. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was cool to to be there and just hang with those guys and sure. you know get to be on that record. I mean, it's like that's a cool album. If, if I had to name like the most influential musicians in my life, I mean, Brad is definitely one of them. Sure. So getting a chance to meet him and and play his music and record for him. I mean, that's like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. Mm, sure. So, yeah, that's cool. Uh, do you feel like you have a different personality on different horns? Mm, that's a good question. Thanks. Um, I... Yes, I think so. Um, and it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot when I've been practicing recently. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, alto is is obviously my main horn, and I, I feel like I've studied the most alto players out of everything I've checked out. 
I have transcribed a lot of tenor players on alto. Okay. I've also transcribed a lot of piano players on alto, a lot of guitar players on alto. You know, so like, like if you had to distill my influences into one thing, it's like what I do on alto. Mm -hmm. Sure. But then there's certain things that like recently, like around Christmas time, I I just like put the alto down, and for a month I only played tenor. Okay. Which, you know, I also love playing tenor, and like recently I've been like like getting more comfortable with it and I found a setup that I really like on it. Mm -hmm. And it was a it was a great chance to just sort of forget about everything that I expect myself to play or that I'm accustomed to playing and transcribe some different things that don't necessarily translate off of the tenor, you know, because like okay. like there's certain things that like Brecker and Joshua Redman and Lovano and guys like they're really playing the tenor when they play. Okay. And checking some of that out, it, you know, it gave me like a little bit different perspective on on what they're doing. Interesting, as opposed to just doing, as opposed to playing it on out, playing tenor stuff on alto. Right. You know, and I think a lot of the tenor stuff I've learned on alto, it's more like older stuff. You know, like like I've learned a lot of Lester solos. I've learned a lot of Sonny Rollins solos. You know, stuff like that to try to like like fill out my sound. You know, get more rooted in like like that kind of articulation mm -hmm. and vocabulary and stuff like that. And then exploring the tenor as like, this is the tenor saxophone, you know, and sure. trying to find that, but then bring some of it back to alto in a different way. Mm -hmm. That was, that was cool. Sure. And then even more recently, I've been, I've been practicing soprano a little bit again. And I think one of the things that's always frustrated me about my own playing on soprano is that you know, as a result of pretty much only playing it in big bands, I kind of play a certain way because of that. You know, my sound, my articulation, like the way I improvise to like cut through, you know, 13 other horn players sure. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I had never done this before, but I started like going back to some tenor solos that I had transcribed and playing them on soprano mm -hmm. and like relearning some of these solos trying to get a little bit more depth in my sound, you know, just trying to make it so that when I pick up a horn, I feel at home on that horn, even if maybe I play a little bit different language on one compared to another. Sure. Okay. Is there a way to describe, as a trumpet player, I can understand the nature of alto versus tenor, mm -hmm. but what is the difference when you're talking about, like, the approach or, like, what is a particular tenor approach as opposed to an alto approach mm. beyond just the obvious range and timbre of the instrument? Well, you know, I think one of the things that is most different, to me at least, is that on tenor, the altissimo register is, like, a very accessible part of the horn, mm -hmm. and it doesn't sound absurdly high. Like, even if you're playing, like, all the way up at the top of the altissimo on tenor, it, it's high, but it's not piercing, it's not shrill. Sure. On alto, if you play equivalently high, nobody wants to hear that. Sure. <laughs> you know, so I think, like, even though I, I go there in, in a lot of my playing on alto... It's sort of for effect, you know, okay. and I think I think a lot of my favorite players use it that way. I mean, like Kenny Garrett, uh, Myron, you know, like like they go to that register when they're trying to like ramp up the intensity, or you know, try to try to like communicate something that's like a little bit more raw or emotional in their playing, 
And on tenor, that part of the range is still like fair game for playing lines. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, yeah, that, yeah, I see what you're saying. That doesn't mean it can't also be that on alto. I mean, if you listen to somebody like like Miguel or or Will Vinson or or like um, one of my friends, Alex Luray, like he's just like mm-hmm. oh, shredding yeah. in the altissimo. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it it's such a great sound, but I think a lot of alto players are afraid to do that because it just has the potential to just kind of get shrill mm-hmm. yeah so sure. that for me that's the biggest difference is you know whether or not you're practicing language in that part of gotcha. the horn sure or if you're practicing it like whether or not you choose to use it yeah right <laughs> yeah sure what was it that drew you to the alto as opposed to tenor or whatever in the first place um you know going way back you know i I said I played classical growing up, and like if you do that, you pretty much play alto. Mm-hmm, like sure. at, at least to study like like repertoire and, and things like that. There are pieces written for soprano and barry and tenor and, and everything. Or you know if you're playing in a saxophone quartet, you'll play any one of the four horns. But your main study is going to be on alto. So that was always my foundation, and then I think sort of as a result of the classical study and like reading well and things like that playing lead alto came sort of naturally to me Mm -hmm. you know i had like growing up you know i could i could play technically well i had a strong sound so even if i wasn't improvising that much you know i was comfortable playing lead alto and i think that was a big part of my development early on was like like listening to records and listening to lead alto players on those records like Mm -hmm. especially like Marshall Royal on April in Paris, um, that that was a big influence for me. And then like later on, like some of the stuff with with um, uh, Jerry Dodgen playing with with Thad and Mel's band. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, so I think I think that was a big part of what I was hearing. And then when I got to college, I sort of gravitated towards like checking out a lot of Kenny Garrett mm-hmm. for a while, and it helped me like find a voice on alto. Sure. That you know, I ultimately realized I couldn't just copy Kenny Garrett, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to I had to like do my own thing. But really digging deep into his music was the first time that I felt comfortable improvising. Okay, you, like not comfortable like like oh yeah, I'm not afraid to take a solo, but like confident. I guess mm-hmm. is maybe a better way to explain it. Like interesting. Like even if somebody put chord changes in front of me and I was supposed to like sight read their tune I got to a point with his language that I could I could like understand how I would approach it with that language okay and then from there I started working backwards and checking out his influences which led me to like Cannonball Bird Johnny Hodges Joe Henderson Coltrane Mm -hmm. Wayne Shorter you know so um, for me I think I think a lot of it was there and there was a time in college that I thought about switching to tenor my senior year Mm -hmm. because another guy that I've always listened to and actually kind of the reason that I'm I'm doing any of this now is Michael Brecker Mm -hmm. sure because I I specifically remember the moment when I was like 12 years old and two blocks from the edge had just come out and I, I was upstairs in my bedroom and my dad called me down to the down to his studio and he was like hey I want you to hear this and he put on Delta City Blues 
and I just like totally lost my shit. I was like, <laughs> is that a saxophone? <laughs> you know, I had been playing for like a couple of years, but I had not heard anybody do anything like that. Sure. Uh-huh. And it was just like, I want to be able to do that. Sure. And I like in high school, even though I like couldn't play any of it, I was just listening to Brecker all the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think his his sound has always been a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And coming from that, you know, I, I did think about, like, if I wanted to be a tenor player, but at the time I had gone so far down the alto rabbit hole that it, it would have been like starting over to, like, sure. yeah, okay. like, relearn tunes, like, develop a sound, you know, like... Like, it, it would have been a lot. And I was, I was starting to get work as an alto player. So tenor's something that is, like, sort of a practice tool for me. You know, okay. I, I love playing it on gigs. I've actually done a lot of big band gigs on tenor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's something that I use to, to give myself a new perspective on alto. Sure. Cool. So, hmm. yeah. Uh, seems like even though you do a lot of small group stuff... The, the big band playing is in your soul. It is. I, I think it always has been. I think a big part of that, um, again, goes back to, to my father. Because I remember as a, as a kid, like, hearing him play in big bands, hearing big band records that he was listening to, you know. So I think, in a way, that was, like, sort of my first exposure to this music was, mm-hmm. was through that lens. It was definitely my first opportunity to play it you know, in my high school big band. Um, so I think I, I sort of gravitated to that in a way. And, you know, then going to a college where the big band program was so strong, mm-hmm. that, wasn't, that wasn't my reason for choosing the University of Miami. I mean, like, like the whole music school is outstanding there. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it just so happens that they've got one of the best big bands at any college in the country. Mm-hmm. But playing in that band, especially my senior year, we had a lot of guest artists. We played a lot of different music. And I think it really kind of like like woke me up to the possibilities of writing for that sort of group. Because mm-hmm. that, that last semester I was there, between the start of the semester in January and spring break in March... We had seven guest artists and played seven completely different two-set concerts. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the band rehearsed four days a week. <laughs> That's pretty good, but, too. But, I mean, there were... I remember we had we had Randy Brecker on one of the concerts, mm. and we were playing all this stuff from the, um, the record that the Brecker brothers did with the WDR band that Vince Mendoza arranged. Mm-hmm. That, okay. That had come out, you know, maybe the year before or something like that. But it was something that, like, everybody at the school was checking out. Or probably everybody everywhere was checking sure. out. Uh-huh. And, you know, that that band and my experience in that band was really, like, a professional situation. Sure. In that we were expected to sound like professionals, and the band was also just run that way. I mean, I remember, like, getting a folder of music for that gig, and we're going through it would kind of like read a chart down, fix a couple things, read it down again. Okay, we're going to play that on the gig. Yeah. You know, and we won't talk about it again until maybe the sound check if Randy wants to go over it then. Sure. Or maybe not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's a good skill to learn. Yeah, and it's like we got to the the chart on some skunk funk and the director was just like, 
okay, you guys all know this tune. We'll hit it at the soundtrack. You know, and that that's, that's just the way tricky. it was. There's some tricky stuff in that. Yeah, but you know, I think like it it really like pushed me to a higher level in terms of like like my professional expectations of myself and mm-hmm. the people that I was working with. Cuz it's like if a bunch of like 21-year-old college kids can do this, then like certainly a bunch of professionals can do it sure. too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so that was that was big for me. But also like that semester, I mean playing his music, playing Dave Liebman's music, playing Nestor Torres music, you know, all different styles, all different approaches to composition, orchestration. You know, it really it really sort of got me started, you know, just wanting to write big band music. Sure. Uh-huh. And even though I didn't do a lot of it until we started the Terraza big band, it was something that like like there were always tunes that I would write and be like, oh, this would be killing to play with a big band. Sure. Uh-huh. You know? And like in the back of my head it's like, okay, someday right. that's gonna be a big band chart. Uh-huh. And fortunately with the Terraza big band I like eventually had an excuse to make a lot of that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> The um, the other thing that, well, a, a few things happened right when I moved here. One was that I had been studying with Miguel Zanon at NEC for my master's. Mm-hmm. And he was he was gearing up to do the Identities Are Changeable record, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's his quartet plus a big band horn section. And, you know, somehow he saw fit to ask me to be in the saxophone section for this uh-huh. and you know I, I got this like sort of vague email from him and it was like hey I'm doing this big band thing next year you know can you do it yeah of course I can do it like <laughs> like, are you kidding me yeah. and th- there like, weren't even any details in the email but it was just like I'll give yeah, my year up I don't have anything next January and it's you so like I'll cancel it right yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so so I got that call and then when I got the when I got the full details and like like all of that, it's kind of like like oh, everybody I listen to is going to be on this game, <laughs> you know. So like like six months after I moved here, I I got a chance to work with you know a lot of the people that I had been checking out, and it it gave me sort of an end to that side of the scene that I don't think I would have had if it weren't for Miguel trusting me to play his music. Mm-hmm. And you know that it gave me um, it gave me some sort of credibility in the big man scene for mm-hmm. for lack of a better way of explaining sure. it. But you know, a big band doesn't really get better than that. Sure. And I had kind of proven myself there. So then, you know, I ended up getting to play with Daphnis Prieto's big band. You know, and because of these situations, a lot of these people became people that I felt comfortable calling when we started the Terraza Big Band. Okay. Which is, you know, that's a big part of how I I started networking here was just playing in big bands. Mm-hmm. Also, a, a couple of, of lesser-known musicians, there was a, a Colombian singer I was playing with who had a big band residency at, at Zincvar, uh, Gregorio Uribe. Mm-hmm. And that, I think I did that gig maybe the second day I moved to New York. Okay. Like, I, I was subbing for a friend of mine... And and she had booked me for like a couple of these, and it was like right around the time I moved here. But if it if it wasn't like the first or second day, it was like the first week I lived here. Sure. 
And going back to your question about playing tenor, there was that gig and there was another one with Nathan Parker Smith. And both of those gigs I was playing tenor on right mm-hmm. away and like meeting all these people playing big band gigs. Nathan had a monthly residency at the old Tea Lounge mm. and then Gregorio's gig at um, Zinc Bar. And I'm, I've just got like all these tenor gigs and a lot of people thought I was a tenor player sure. when I moved here. Yeah. And I was kind of like, no, I play alto. Call me for <laughs> alto gigs. You know, so it, it was it was kind of like... Like, as much as I wanted to play alto, I was really lucky to be working at all and to mm-hmm. be working with high-level players. I mean, like, like Gregorio's band, that's how I met Matt McDonald, Mike Fay, Sam Hoyt, mm-hmm. Carl Moraghi. You know, it, it was, like, a pretty killing band. Sure. You know, and to get to go in, and eventually I was, like, basically playing with them every month. Uh, Jonathan Powell was doing it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was that was a great experience. And then, you know, there was some overlap with Nathan's band. Um, Mike was doing it a lot. Matt McDonald, Alden Bonta. Um, you know, a lot of people that I've seen on a lot of other gigs. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel very lucky to have sort of fallen into that scene when I got here, not just for the networking, but also because it, it continued to, like, sort of push me to start my own big band. Sure. So, did you have? When did you start the Terraza band? Uh, our first gig was June, two thousand fifteen. Okay. Did you have a book in advance? Did you have a bunch of big band charts that you wanted to play, or did no. you? So you started the band, and then, or what was the origins? So uh, I co-lead the band with with the bassist Edward Perez, mm-hmm. and at the time we were roommates together, and. I, I think at the time he was doing he was doing his master's in jazz composition at Queens College. Okay. So he was taking a, a big band writing course with, with Mike Mossman, I I think, if if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And you know, he I had written a couple of things, like just, you know, randomly and and he had written something for that class and we we're just kinda like like showing each other what we're working on. And uh one morning we we're just like like having coffee and it's like you know we should like try to play some of this stuff because he had a session at, at Queens College where they tried to read one of his charts and it was not cool okay <laughs> you know not and it wasn't the chart sure <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and we we're like well, it, well if we get if we get people that we know that like we we know they can really play you know this stuff sounds like it should work um so you know, we should try to make that happen. Like we mm-hmm. can just like, like buy a bunch of beer and order some pizzas and like see if everybody's down to like read through this stuff. Sure. And then that that was kind of like, well, if we're gonna do that, like, should we try to get a gig? Because like we'll basically have like rehearsed these charts. You know, like what if what if we tried to get a gig? And where we lived at the time was like three blocks from Terraza. Okay. We were both hanging there all the time and, and playing there a lot. And he was like, well, maybe Freddie would go for it. You know, like, like I could talk to him. This seems like something that, like, only he would be crazy enough to, to do. And then I, it was, like, a couple days later, he, he came and knocked on my bedroom door, and, and he was like, dude, we have a big band gig in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, like, all of a sudden we had a big band gig. We didn't know who we were going to call, and between the two of us, we had four charts. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, okay, we both have to write another chart 
in the next three weeks. Like we, like we need at least six tunes to do a set. Sure. Like we, yeah. we can call that a set of music and not hate ourselves. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we're like talking about who to get on the gig. We're like writing charts until like four in the morning every night because we're both like relatively inexperienced and not very fast at it. Sure. And uh, then, you know, it, like we got a bunch of cool people on the gig. It was really fun. Freddie loved it. And then as soon as the gig was over, he was like, can you guys do this every month? And <laughs> it was one of those moments where it's like, again, you don't say no. Right. But we're both like sort of panicking, like, well, we can't just play this next month. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we just agreed that like for the foreseeable future, we were each going to write one new chart every month for the mm -hmm. band. Because that's, you know, that's a reasonable amount of time to sure. write a big band chart, even if you're not that fast at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, for a long time we were doing that, and some of the stuff we've, like, pulled from the book because we realized it's not not as good as we sure. thought it was. Yeah. Um, That's the value of it, is that if you're constantly writing, you just get rid of the stuff you don't like over time. Yeah, you're always adding new stuff, and also having a chance to, like, hear it every month and, like, learn mm -hmm. something from having heard it played and talking to the people who are playing it. Like, you know, is, is this line cool on the trumpet? Or, you know, if I'm writing this... For guitar, do you want it in the staff written 8VA or do you want it actually with ledger lines, you know? Mm -hmm. And it it kind of reminds me of like what what everybody talks about with Duke Ellington writing for the musicians in his band. Even mm -hmm. though we don't necessarily have the same musicians every time, you know, you get a sense of how to write for the people that you want to write for. Mm -hmm. And we've been really lucky over the last six years to do that, you know, pre-pandemic every month. Sure, right. And there's no better way to learn than to just than to actually be doing it all the time. Right. And there's like no substitute for that. You know, it's it's one thing if a composition teacher says like, I don't think you should do this, it's another thing if the second tone role player says like like you cannot do yeah, this. Yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. All of a sudden there's like a there's a little bit of a stigma involved. Yeah, yeah. Oh, bro, I can't play this, so Yeah, so so that's that's been like a super cool experience to to lead that project with Edward and to put out a record and just you know, sort of see where it's taken us. Sure. It reminds me of, I always think, like, if you think about, like, uh, Jerry Mulligan learning to write big band charts, he's on the bus for a long time. Like, his formative years were, like, on the bus writing right. charts for that night or whatever it was. Yeah. Like, it's an amazing thing to have a regular, out, you know, a regular outlet so that you're actually forced yeah. to continue to do it. And it's not always easy, especially with a big band, but nowadays, big band music is not, is has let's say, steered away from being the popular music in 2021. Right. I, th I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good opportunity to be able to, like, all right, let's try this out, try different things. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's been cool because also as we've we've gotten to know the, the musicians, they've gotten to know us as composers. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, like, sort of come to expect a certain vibe from the music and and, like, understanding that, you know, playing with our band isn't like walking into a gig that you can sight read. Sure. You know, which, which has made a big difference in terms of what we're able to write because we can really write what we want at mm -hmm. this point rather than feeling limited because it's a New York big band that doesn't really rehearse. Sure. It's like, well, this is what we want and we know that the musicians are down to, you know, put in an hour or two before the gig and check it out and throw down when they show up. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, to have the right musicians for the job in that respect is like, you, yeah. know, you can trust them to do the work. Yeah, and that's that's been something too is like, like, 
one of the things that Edward and I have talked about, especially when we were like really starting to like like get things going with the band and we'd been doing it maybe like a year and a half or two years, we realized that we really had like two big bands worth of people that were like our regular call. Mm -hmm. So it reached a point where like even the subs, you know, which it, it just feels like the wrong word in that situation because there's so many people that play the gig so much and all sound so good. Yeah. It's not like it belongs to anyone except me and Edward, I guess. Sure. Uh -huh. But even then, like each of us have subbed out of it before and it's like like there was a there was a month that I just couldn't do it. There was another month that we couldn't get any tenor players, so I played tenor and I got one of my friends on alto uh -huh. who's played with us before. You know, so it's like he's not even subbing in the band, he's just playing a different book. Sure, I gotcha. You yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. so the idea of having subs, that's not even something that we really think about. It's just that we've we're lucky to have so many musicians that we enjoy hearing on our music. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's also an interesting, it's a particularly interesting group because you can hear the difference between your voice as a composer and Edward's voice as a composer, but it all works together. Right. Like you can play a tune, I'm like, I know, okay, I know who wrote this, but it sounds cohesive. It doesn't sound like two different big bands sort of squished into one set. Right, and we've, we've talked about that before when we were, um, I think we did a, a couple of interviews, you know, surrounding the publicity for our record. Mm -hmm. And that's something that everybody always asks about. And there really haven't been that many co-led big bands. I mean, like, Thad and Mel is, like, the one. Mm -hmm. But and in that then, instance, wasn't... I feel like Thad Jones was the musical director. Yeah, in a, in a sense, but they were... I don't know. I, I'm I mean... Making that up a little bit, but, like, it's not the same thing. Of like he was the composer. I think they were, like, co-directing the band, sure. was my understanding. But it isn't the Mel Lewis arrangements and the Thad Jones right. it arrangements. Right, it was Thad's arrangements. Or, you know, like Ellington and Strayhorn, mm -hmm. you know, that's the other one. Although that's a very odd pairing because it was such a unique situation in that they could sort of, like, finish each other's sentences. Right, way. right. So their, their music really took on, like, collectively a life of its own. Mm -hmm. um, but with, with our stuff... You know, some, somebody asked us about this before, and, and we were talking about the fact that we grew up inspired by a lot of the same recordings and the same musicians. Like, we we didn't know each other until after I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. And again, it was one of those things where we both passed through Boston at different times and played with a lot of the same people in Boston at different times and then met each other in Boston after we both lived in New York. You know? Yeah, classic. Um, yeah. So, but one, once we started playing together, it was kind of like, like, oh man, I love that record too, you know, mm -hmm. and and like living together, you know, we're like checking out all this music and everything. So our influences aren't that different. You know, they, sure. uh -huh. they are and they aren't. Yeah. You know, the other thing is that we love playing with a lot of the same musicians. You know, like, like we both appreciate certain things musically that certain people bring to the table, which means it's been really easy to agree on who we want in the big band. Sure. You mm -hmm. know, it, it would not work if, you know, he wanted something totally different than what I wanted. Sure. But fortunately, you know, like, that's all been, like, very well aligned for us. And it's it's made it really easy to, like, truly co-lead the band. Mm-hmm. Sure. So. Did you record One Day Wonder in one day? We did. We did. It was... 
that's actually kind of a funny story because we did it at Systems 2 before they closed. Mm -hmm. Sure. And um, I don't know if you ever recorded there, but... Um, I was there once, yeah. Uh, what was the what was the manager's name? The the woman who worked there, that. Nancy. Okay. Um, that was like my first choice to record because we had we had just done Daphnis's record there that summer, mm -hmm. and I remember walking in and I was just like, "This is how you record a big band." Sure. Like everything was ready to go. Everybody had their own headphone mix. Like so organized, so easy, and I was like, "Like okay." We could do it here or here or here, but we have to do it at Systems too. Sure. Like, uh -huh. like if something terrible happens, like we could still do it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And you know, I I put in I put in a call to Nancy, and I was like, look, you know, I've got this big band, and we're wondering if you're open on this day to to do a record. Um, and we'd like to. We know you do eight-hour sessions. We'd like to book overtime and do twelve. Because um, we just have the one day for the, the record. And it, it was like people were in and out of town, and like literally that was the day that everybody we wanted could do it. And she's kind of like, well, you can't do a big band record in one day. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, that's funny. Uh, we don't really have a choice, but I think we can. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, it was, it was like back and forth. Like, like she was like, well, you, you should talk to some other people that have done big man records. And like, maybe like double check because I don't think you should do this in one day. I think you should find a time that you can do it in two days, you know, and do two eight hour days. And it, it would only be a little bit more than paying for the overtime. Mm -hmm. And you'll be more comfortable and all this stuff. She's like really trying to sell us on not doing it in one day. Yeah. Now wait, were you trying to do it in one day because you wanted to get all the right musicians and it yeah. was only it was like be we too wanted much to do to it by the end of the year and like that was just when we could do it. Yeah. Okay. Like between like whatever like eighteen schedules. I know that's a, yeah, so. Right. Um, it's like the most time I've ever spent on my phone and computer is sure. organizing trying a to project. Make sure that it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, ultimately she was like, "Okay, look, it's your call. You know, I'll." I'll book the day for you, you know, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I have to warn you going into this, you know, and, and I was like, no, it's, it's cool, I appreciate it, you know, like, you, you've been there a long time, I know you know what's up, but, you know, we're, we're going to do this in a day. So, we get there, we're getting set up, and, uh, you know, the first thing that happened was, was Jimmy McBride was, was playing drums, so he was there early, he was setting up. And I was in the control room when they were sound checking everything. And like, you know, the engineer's like, okay, play the bass drum, you know, and mm -hmm. play this cymbal, you know, and they finally say like, okay, play the whole, play the whole kit. And he starts like playing one of the grooves from one of Edward's tunes. And the, <laughs> um, Joe, the engineer, he, he looked at me and he was just like, who the fuck is this kid? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he's, he's really good. Cause yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's like so unassuming and then he just sits down at the drums and it's like a different story. Yeah. He's really good. And, um, so then we, uh, we, we're all set up and we, we finally get to like, okay, we're going to do the first take. And we do, we do the first take 
And as as is the case in most sessions, like whether or not you're going to do another take, you listen to the first take to make sure everything's cool. Sure. So so Edward and I and like a like a few other people went into the control room, and Joe and Nancy were both there, and they were both like, uh, they might actually do this in one day, because <laughs> I I think a lot of big bands, you know, they don't have like a two and a half year residency before they go in the studio. For sure. Yeah. And it I think there was only maybe like one person who was new to the band for the recording Mm -hmm. and everybody else had played the music like half a dozen times sure minimum yeah yeah, yeah, you know if not like 20 times yeah so you know we we just start like banging these tunes out I think we did everything in two takes and one tune in three takes Mm -hmm. and we actually finished like two hours before the session was up (laughs) (laughs) and and I remember um at the end of the day, Nancy was like, literally no one has done this before. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah, it was it was one day, and it was, you know, it was kind of like, like just, uh, like I knew, I knew it was going to be fine, but it was just a relief to hear that first take and be like, this is going to be even better than we yeah, thought. Yeah, it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny, man. So, therefore, one day wonder. Man, that's amazing. Which... Coincidentally, is the title of Troy's tune that we recorded. So, you know, how could that not be the title track of the record? Of course, yeah. Wait, did, was that was it was it, was it titled like that after the fact? No, no, that was that For was real? the tune. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. And then we we're like, well, I cool. mean, come yeah, yeah. on, <laughs> or day, this is like, yeah, it's been decided in advance. That's amazing. All right, real quick, what's your next thing? What's the next thing on your plate? What are you doing? Next thing on my plate is uh, April second. I am doing a live stream from uh, Culture Lab, which is just around the corner here. Oh, yeah. Um, is that, are you going to be do- indoors or? Yeah, indoors playing. Uh, place is cool. Quartet uh, with Julian and Edward and uh, Jonathan mm-hmm. playing music from Natural Habitat for the virtual CD release. Right, sure. So, yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm excited. It's first time I'm playing with a band in a while yeah, so yeah right how do people find it culturelab.com uh, yeah I think it's .org .org yeah okay so um, but yeah it'll be up there they stream everything on YouTube so I think we play at 7 cool so yeah Friday April 2nd 7pm uh, right here's some of the music from Natural Habitat nice I'm so, looking forward to hearing it yeah Great. Well, thanks, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. This is fun. Great. All right, gang. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? Big thanks to Michael Thomas for coming on the program. Be sure to pick up a copy of his new album, Natural Habitat, out on Sunnyside Records on March 26th. You can find that at his website at michaelthomasjazz.com or through Sunnyside Records. Be sure to buy a copy. Support the artists. And if you are thirsty for beer in Long Island City, be sure to check out Iconic Brewing. Brewing. Iconic Brewing. I-C-O-N-Y-C. It was delicious beer, and I will be sure to go back there. That was a lot of fun. All right, gang. Well, if you like the show and you want to keep up with what we're doing, you can find us on all of the platforms Apple, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash jazztopiapodcast. We also have a Facebook page. You can look us up. 
and we've got a brand new YouTube channel, which we're going to start putting up clips of the shows. So if you want to see a video version of all of this, be sure to uh, go check out our YouTube channel, and you can like it, the videos, and subscribe, and do all the stuff that helps us out as we continue to talk to the great minds in jazz and improvised music. All right, thanks again for sticking around for another episode of Jazztopia, and we'll see you again next Wednesday. All right, take care, gang. See ya.